going to go ahead and get started. Uh, welcome everybody to the Orthopedic Trauma Journal Club. This is our third installment uh, on, this one's focused on pilon fractures. I'm joined today by two other moderators, uh, Dr. Andrew Chin from University of North Carolina and Dr. John Maroletto from uh, University of Mississippi. My name is Arne Neja from University of Kentucky. We've got quite a lineup of faculty uh, joining from Minnesota is Dr. Peter Cole, uh, Dr. Pierre Guy from uh, British Columbia, Dr. Samir Mehta from uh, University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Michael Serkin from uh, Rutgers, New Jersey, and Dr. Tim White in Scotland. So thank you for the faculty for participating. These are the disclosures, uh, not relevant to this talk, but uh, so tonight's schedule, we're going to start off with a uh, uh, couple videos, uh, Dr. Cole's uh, PILON map, as well as Dr. Samir Mehta's uh, reduction strategies through an interlateral approach. Uh, this is going to be followed by 10-minute question and answer session, so feel free to type in your questions. Um, and then we'll do another series of videos uh, featuring Dr. Serkin on stage treatment of PILON fractures, and then Dr. Peter Gee on early primary open reduction internal fixation. And then finally, we'll conclude with uh, just some uh, wrap up, take home message, uh, and so forth. So, the learning objectives for this course are to sort of understand the concept of the PILON map, really sort of understand the primary fracture line as well as the zones of impaction. We will discuss the strength and limitations of the anterolateral approach particularly with reduction strategies. And then finally, we'll discuss the role of stage treatment versus early primary open reduction internal fixation. Uh, Zoom etiquette, you know, uh, please have your microphones muted and videos turned off. Uh, use the chat box for questions related to the discussion topic. Uh, one of the moderators is gonna be reviewing that and uh, kind of filling in and answering as many questions as we can. And then uh, some of the questions will present them to the faculty as well. So with that, we're going to start our first uh, article that we selected for the PILON fracture series. Uh, it is on the PILON map, fracture lines and comminution zones in the OTA AO type 43C3 PILON fractures, uh, written by Dr. Peter Cole. So with that, we'll play the video. Uh, to the first question, you know, how did you come up with this idea of performing this paper? This concept of the PILON map is very novel. I was wondering if you could kind of tell us how you came up with the idea. Well, I love the story. Uh, it's really one of the favorite stories of my career as it, late, as it uh, relates to uh, both my clinical practice as well as my uh, d discovery. I, uh, I, I love um, research, uh, and I love trying to prove that uh, you know what what we're doing is is right. I like trying to uh, uh, figure out answers to questions and discover things we don't understand and make sense of things that don't make sense to me. And that's the story behind this situation. Uh, it was uh, in um, the early two thousands, maybe around two thousand two or three. I, uh, you know, went to uh, uh, do a tour and visit a uh, a, a particular um, uh, vendor 
uh, headquarters. And, uh, and so they were kind of intrigued by uh, the fact that I loved uh, periarticular fractures, particularly of the foot and ankle. And, and so, you know, I, I recall the, the time when, when se uh, several engineers and product development people and I were sitting around a table and they said, uh, gee, you know, we'd love your thoughts about, um, uh, you, you know, the, the reaction to a few prototype types that we have developed. Um, and uh, for the tibia pilon fracture, uh, they knew I, I liked uh, pilon fracture surgery. So I, uh, they put them out on the table and I looked at them. And, uh, and, and these were developed by, uh, of course, uh, uh, big league experts in the field. And, and of course, I'm just starting out in practice. The first thing that occurred to me was, wow, every single one of them is completely different than the other. They, they were not at all like each other. They didn't go on the same part of the bone. They weren't the same sizes. Uh, they didn't have the same screw vectors. And so, so a light bulb went off in my head. Like, how is it possible that three so-called pilon experts come up with a completely different concept to fix the pilon fracture? And I saw a lot of conflict between these implants. And in fact, the implants didn't, didn't really seem to address the things that I was experiencing as a pilon fracture surgeon. Probably the biggest uh, issue was that, you know, at that time, uh, pilon fractures were essentially always fixed with a medial-sided plate. Uh, so, uh, so, so I thought, okay, this is this is a bad way about uh, 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 this is a bad way of going about designing an implant. Simply asking an expert what they want, and and that's the way it happens all too frequently. And, and so what I thought was, what if we actually created a data set that would inform the development of an implant? And so it's probably surprising to people that that is actually what the vision of the pro project was. It started with um, my assessment of uh, uh, current implant designs for tibia pilon fractures and thinking, no, this just doesn't seem right. I don't, I don't think the screw vectors are right, the location of the plate, uh, and, and so on. So, uh, so I, I thought, well, you know, I guess, I think the way to try and, um, to, to understand this is, is to identify the most common morphology of tibia pilon fractures. And so, um, I, I simply, you know, took the, uh, the, the, the CT cuts uh, just above the plafond in 38 fractures and mapped them. And um, not so much to my surprise did I see things occur over and over, but I just didn't expect the consistency with which I saw it. Now, keep in mind in Jackson, Mississippi, um, at, in, that, in, in that period of time, um, we were dealing with um, 43C3 high-energy pilons in relatively young patients. I, I do think that there is a uh, probably, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that um, all of this applies perfectly to 
fragility fracture variants or the pilon fracture in the more elderly patient. Um, this was a, a pretty typical high energy young 80% male population uh, which uh, made up these pilon fractures. So what was interesting, of course, is the finding that um, I, I, you, would, you would see this, what I call the primary fracture lines. Those were the fracture lines that occurred in, in essentially every case. And then you'd see a lot of secondary fracture lines, which would establish the comminution in a tibial plafond. So that was, that was so exciting for me to discover and then go back to the same manufacturer and say, you see, this, this, is, this informs us what kind of implant uh, we need. You know, where you want your raft of screws, how distal you need the plate, um, you know, where the plate is on the location of the bone in the vast majority of cases. I, I love the story, but there is something about the map, which is, it, which is visual. Like all you need to do is see the map and you get it. And so it's a powerful uh, 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 a message to the operating surgeon. You know, it tells you where you wanna be, what to expect, what you would want your implants to look like, what, what novel approaches you could develop. You know, it, it informs uh, the, the, the surgeon tremendously rather than going into what you know is a smash fracture and you know, not necessarily uh, uh, being able to predict the things that actually occur over and over. I mean, it's it, in, in a rudimentary sense, it uh, was sort of a first uh, generation artificial intelligence, I suppose. Uh, another feature I really admired about this article, and I'm very grateful you got this published, you know, because we've seen this very <laughs> unique novel concept of the pilon map being replicated even in tibial plateaus. You, you mentioned scapulas. I, I even just saw it the other day on radiuses. So, you know, I, I definitely think this article is way ahead of its time. But uh, I was going to ask you, was it always, you know, the, the concept of just the Y configuration by itself is enough? Uh, but was it always... Uh, the objective to also look at the zone of comminution and impaction or was did you just happen to come across that can you tell us a little bit yeah about yeah absolutely i i think that that the the two um uh, go hand in hand uh you know i i mapped the the primary and secondary fracture lines and so what becomes what becomes very apparent is that um the the comminution zones uh, stand out um and uh, so, so that was part of the mapping process from the very beginning, uh, Arun. And, uh, um, and I think a very key takeaway for the project, it tells you, A, you know, how injured the apex of the plafond becomes because that central corridor uh, from the fibular inside Shura to, to the, uh, uh, to the to the medial angle is is where the worst comminution occurs right in the dome. I mean that might seem intuitive, but it, it, you know you you really see it when you see a map. Uh, and uh, and then anterior lateral. Um, you know why were we fixing all pilon fractures with medial plates uh, if the anterior if if all the comminution is anterior lateral and your primary fracture line is oriented in the coronal plane, 
you would want to flag that, right? So, um, so, so that's what was so powerful to me. And those two concepts did come along. Uh, Great. Uh, just to sort of wrap this up and conclude with our final question, you know, um, regarding the topic of pylons, I was wondering what you thought were some of the knowledge gaps that we're currently facing on treating these devastating injuries. You know, um, what, where are some of the areas that we could really make future advances and future research in this topic of pylon fractures? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting. Knowledge gaps, uh, I was, I think knowledge gaps and knowledge deficits are, are two different things. Uh, uh, knowledge gaps, um, uh, the things that come to mind are, um, um, you, you know, what, what is the right stiffness of, of the implants with, with the, with the surgical approaches that we use today, um, how stiff do we want our construct? And do we want to think of, of uh, you know, the, the working length and the, the stress and strain uh, and modulus elasticity of, of your implants relative to the, to the uh, you know, to, to the long bone itself? I, I think that is one. I see, I, I get the sense that many of our implants for the type of biologically respectful surgery that we do today are very over-engineered. Uh, and uh, I, th I think um, another thing that comes to mind is the, uh, the handling of the soft tissues. You know, it, 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 it's always occurred to me that uh, um, in, in some of the approaches we use for the pilon uh, anteriorly, you, you incise the retinaculum and, and, and very infrequently can you repair it properly. Uh, so what is the role of the retinaculum? Why do we have one in the first place? And, and I think most of us probably feel that it's not a huge problem. We don't see bowstringing of the uh, anterior tendons. Uh, but is that, is that at the cost of... Um, uh, of emotion loss or, or scarring or symptoms that could be avoided if we, um, if, if we were better at addressing an incompetent retinaculum. Uh, same with the epitenon, you know, frequently you get into the, uh, in, into the, the epitenon of the, you know, the, the extensor digitorum or the anterior tib or whatever. And, and I, I think, I mean, that, 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 is the blood supply to the tendon. And I think that's important as well. I'd like to know more about uh, the pathophysiology there. You know, certainly um, anything we can do to um, maintain or restore the resilience of articular cartilage is paramount. Uh, uh, I, I think that, you know, most people tend to feel that the damage is done at the time of injury and and it it's a little bit of a of a nihilistic thought because I think if 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 you over promote that idea, what tends to happen is that you um, you, you you are not as focused on a good articular reduction. I, I think the subset of patients that do better is larger if you have a stable anatomic reduction. So 
we, we shouldn't we shouldn't give up on the cartilage, but anything we could do from a biological standpoint to uh, to to manage cartilage loss after pilon fractures would be <laughs> Nobel Prize winning work. And of course, um, a number of uh, studies, clinical tri trials are being done as it relates to that in the setting of osteoarthritis has not really crossed over to the setting of trauma. I think um, I think artificial intelligence is is actually uh, uh, something that uh, will help to inform us more. So for example, if if you could really apply the different kinds of fracture patterns, the bone quality, the comorbidities uh, uh, to each patient and link it to a prognosis, I think it would help our, our decision making. I mean, there is certainly a subset of patients that would um, benefit from primary arthrodesis, for example. Um, and uh, it would help with uh, prognostication. And I, I think that the, the, the information, the data is out there to be able to, to do that. And, and there have been uh, uh, some, uh, certainly some good studies um, uh, for example, you know, out of shock trauma from, from Kevin O'Halloran and, and, uh, and, and the group there that, that, um, is, is able to create a, a prognostication index based on certain risk factors. But I'm, I'm, I'm actually talking about something that gets down to back to the pilon map, to the fracture pattern, to the amount of comminution and impaction and, if you could just plug all all that uh, all those variables into um, an equation, I think you'd have a pretty good idea of um, you know how a patient can do if you accomplish your surgical goals. Um, those are some uh, things that come to mind. You know, I think our evidence-based medicine um, it leans too heavily toward so-called you know, prospective randomized trials and, and, and it, it doesn't necessarily help us individualize our treatments of one surgeon to one patient because uh, the results of randomized controlled trials, um, they apply to populations, populations of patients and populations of surgeons. Uh, the results don't apply to any one surgeon and their patient. So we have to be really careful with that as well. All right, great. Uh, we're going to go ahead and proceed to the next article. Uh, keep in mind, just keep typing in your questions uh, after this next uh, article. That's video. the first question. You uh, know, how kind do you of, uh, after the next article video, we'll kind of turn it over to the live uh, authors, Dr. Cole and Dr. Meta, for some questions. So keep typing in your questions. The next article is going to be an article by uh, Dr. Samir Mehta on the reduction strategies to the interlateral exposure for fixation of type B and C pilon fractures. Okay, so with that, uh, so Dr. Mehta, thank you for joining us. Today we're going to be discussing your article on reduction strategies to the interlateral exposure for fixation of type B and C pilon fractures. This is one of the articles that we uh, decided were was a landmark article for pilon fracture treatment. So thank you for agreeing to be part of this. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
So first thing I got to ask you is what prompted you to write this sort of uh, technical trick article? Yeah, and I think like anything else in orthopedic literature, it's sort of what was the motivation to do it. Uh, and for me and for us, um, I think there are a couple of things that drive drive us to write. I think one of the things about technique or surgical exposure articles is that sometimes they're hard to find. Um, they're buried in a book chapter somewhere uh, or in a resource that may not be accessible to most people. Um, and exposure or technical articles, I think, are extremely helpful because at the end of the day, I think what separates things like orthopedic surgery from other subspecialties, aside from the medical part of it, is also the technical part of it. And the technical part of it, I think, can be sometimes very challenging. And so for us, the motivation, or for me, the motivation was this particular technique, while I learned it in fellowship and we used it readily, wasn't something that my, my residents, when I came back to Philadelphia, really knew about or could even really find a good reference on uh, with imaging, with discussion, with indications. Uh, and so that was uh, the driving force to say, hey, listen, this has not really been well described. Similar to the anteromedial article uh, that's been published in a similar fashion uh, to the Plafond and other, I mean, there's other articles. And sometimes what often happens is that uh, some of these technique articles, the technical aspect of the surgical technique is buried in a in a more broad-based paper on the um, the outcomes of the procedure, or on a on a uh, in a different kind of format, whereas sometimes you just want to know how to do it, right? And so the rationale here was let's let's write an article on how to do it. Great. Um, so to start off, you know, you kind of gave a really good explanation of when to do this approach as opposed to doing the anteromedial. Could you just summarize for the listeners? Yeah, I think, I think there are different ways or different reasons to approach the tibial plafond. And, and the data is pretty clear that a CT scan is extremely important. And studying that CT is, uh, will affect your decision-making, your surgical planning, and your surgical reduction technique. From, uh, for, for the anterolateral exposure, uh, if, if you have a tremendous amount of medial comminution or you have to do a lot of work on the medial side, the anterolateral technique probably is not the is not the best way to get to the anteromedial or medial side of the tibial plafond. Um, it's and that's not to say you can't put a medial implant on the tibial plafond through a separate small percutaneous incision if you had to do a little buttress plate uh, if you're worried about varus collapse or something like that. But if you're looking to do articular work on the medial side of the tibial plafond, then that is not a good reason or not a reason to do the anterolateral exposure. You can do the anterolateral exposure in conjunction with a posterolateral exposure. And uh, Jamie Howard's article showed that the, the skin bridges are, are sufficient enough to manage that. So you can get to the back of the tibia or back of the fibula and also get to the front of the tibia uh, through an anterolateral exposure uh, without worrying too much about skin bridges as long as you are careful with the angiosomes. Uh, but if, if you're looking to do medial work, then go medial. And I, when I talk about tibial plafonds, it's all about where's the work that needs to be done and use the exposure that will get, to, get you to where the work needs to be done. Great. Uh, you know, likewise, another thing I really liked about this article is you kind of really did a good job describing the sequence of fixation working from the back to the front. And you really described this dorsiflexed uh, posterior lateral fragment uh, and you mentioned a couple of tricks, but I was wondering if you could kind of review some of the tricks you used to reduce that dorsiflexed posterior lateral fragment. 
So I think there are different ways to get to that dorsiflexed uh, lateral fragment. I think one trick, if you will, is to get the fibula anatomic, um, and that can help drive some of that, um, some of that reduction. Additionally, uh, using an uh, elevator or uh, a, a, a freer to help mobilize that fragment will also help. Um, getting around to the back of the tibial plafond uh, through a posterior lateral incision, especially if that's the incision that you used for your fibula, can also help you approach uh, that posterior lateral fragment. Um, I also think the use of a distractor can also help visualization. Um, uh, I can't, you know, the other thing that you can do to really see back there is to use a dental mirror. If your hospital has a dental mirror, um, they don't tend to fog up. And so you can insert a dental mirror through, with a distractor into the back of the tibial plafond to really see back there as well. Okay, great. Uh, you know, you describe uh, taking a C-type, OTA C-type fracture and converting into a B-type fracture. I was wondering, when do you find that uh, to be extremely challenging and when are you kind of going from a C to an A, sort of? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think, again, that it comes down to, you know, the question is when do you convert a C-type to a B-type or C-type to an A-type and what drives some of the decision-making? I think the number one driver for me in terms of decision-making is the CT scan and also what's happening with that posterior fragment. If that posterior fragment is um, has a spike that comes up proximally, uh, where I think I can reduce it through a posterior medial exposure, or even through a posterior lateral exposure, or I may go prone to to get a perfect anatomic read of that art, art, uh, indirect reduction of that articular block by getting a direct reduction of of the more proximal end of that fracture fragment on the diaphysis, um, I tend to try and convert a C type to a B type. Uh, and it's usually with the posteromedial exposure, there's usually a posteromedial spike. And by converting that B that C-type to a B-type, it makes your anterior exposure and reduction much easier. The, chal the challenge comes in when you have these far distal C-type posterior injuries where there's no good way to control it from the front uh, and they're distal. Um, you know, obviously fixing the fibula is something I also, we talked about before, but something I like to do. And the CT scan will hopefully will give me a clue as to whether that posterior fragment is associated with the distal fibula. And by getting the distal fibula anatomic, can I drive some of that, that posterior malleolar reduction? So uh, for me, it really comes down to the CT and whether I can get, um, get that C type to a B type, which is my preference, because I'd like to build off a stable posterior foundation. If I can't get the C-type to B-type, then I want to build the articular block first while it's still mobile rather than malreducing the posterior malleolar component and then having to drive off to that. Great. Um, next question is, you know, the osteo, the challenging osteochondral fragments. Um, do you have any sort of tricks to kind of provisionally hold it reduced while you're placing your definitive implant? Are you using the talus? The articular surface of the talus is a template. How are you holding it there? Yeah, so I that's always a challenge when you have those small osteochondral fragments. Um, the first thing I do is make sure that they're disimpacted uh, and they that they can be that they're mobile so that you can get them where they need to be. I use a lot of Kirchner wires and smaller diameter Kirchner wires, so not the six twos, but maybe the five fours or the four fives to really get my, my get a surface that can support that piece. Um, what I will sometimes do is use the distractor, get distraction of the joint first, mobilize the pieces, 
place my K wires as a scaffold or a raft, and then I'll release the distractor so that Talus then pushes that articular fragment back up. You know, I use a lot of uh, dental pick uh, utilization as well to mobilize those fragments. Um, I will actually use intraosseous uh, uh, mini fragment screws as well. So uh, obviously that can be a challenge if it gets infected, but um, but I will try and secure those uh, pieces with some small mini fragment screws. I know there's some people who are using some bioabsorbable type things. I, I haven't done that. I don't have access to that at my hospital, but um, there are some te techniques and tricks to do using those as well. Um, but it, oftentimes I am using the talus as a, as a scaffold, but it's only after I've mobilized the fragment and I've also um, placed rafting wires to support so that it doesn't over compress and I lose my reduction. Um, uh, next question is, uh, you know, sliding the anterior lateral plate while the foot's in the way, you know, especially particularly with longer plates, do you have any, you know, this was something uh, you know, I, I kind of initially struggled with. Do you have any tricks? Do you use counter incision? What, what's your methodology? Yeah, so the, the issue of sliding a long plate, uh, quote unquote, up the tibia through an anterolateral exposure with the uh, can be challenging because the foot can get in the way, especially with some of the longer plates. And so uh, there are a couple different options for this. Uh, one option is to actually make a counter incision more proximally. Um, or a couple of counter incisions. Sometimes you have to make more than one uh, to help guide that plate as you put it in, then start to turn it and glide it up the tibia. Uh, another option that some people utilize, and I'm not a really a huge fan of this, is you can actually insert your plate from top down, um, but you have to navigate the, the plate a little bit. It, you have to and I've never done this, but I've heard people do this. They kind of get it underneath and they tie a suture to it and they kind of pull it towards them and I would not advocate for that. I think the counter incision technique works and it works really well and it helps actually get your screws into proximally. And so um, just have to be mindful of the of the nerve distally and, and making sure that uh, your orientation of your plate is set proximal and distal. Plate balance is really important. So if you are gonna use a long plate with counter incisions, pinning the plate proximally, pinning the plate distally and making sure you've got that plate balance right is really important. Great. Uh, last question. Uh, Got to talk about the new technology out there. Do you find uh, the newer generation plates with that distal tab of screws to be helpful uh, in your practice, or do you still choose some sort of mini fragment fixation or you know some of those rafting K wires as you described? Yes and no. <laughs> um, I think I think new technology uh, can be helpful. I. Uh, I think it, it depends on, again, it depends on your fracture pattern. It depends on what those screws are going to do with the orientation of those screws. A lot of times um, for me, I'm still using some mini fragment fixation across that very distal articular edge or some K wires, and then I'm putting the plate on top. If the pattern allows for it and the mini fragment fixation or that small fragment fracture fixation or fragment specific fixation is not quite as necessary, I may I may shy away from using a mini fragment plate and use one of these newer implants that allows me to put screws as quote unquote rafters or really distal. A lot of these newer implants have a really small row of screws, just like two, four or two, seven screws. And then the more, the bigger, more macro small frag screws more proximally. 
Um, so I think it, it really is dealer's choice. I think you have to be mindful that you're, you want to, you don't want your implant to drive your reduction and drive your, your screw application. So if, if, if I find that my implant is not letting me put my screws where I need to, then I'll use a different implant, like a mini frag plate, put my screws where I want them to go and then back it up with larger fixation. Great. Th thank you so much, Dr. Mando. That was a very great comprehensive review. Um, okay. So with that, uh, all right, so now we're gonna uh, turn it over to the authors for some question and answers. Uh, we've had a couple questions uh, pop up. Uh, before we get into the questions, uh, you know, one thing, uh, Dr. Cole, I, I did uh, have a question for him, uh, you know, about the pylon maps and the zone of the combination impaction. And I think he's actually gonna share his screen with us uh, to describe this, you know, the concept of pylon map, which is kind of groundbreaking because I think we've seen in a lot of different fractures. So I'm gonna stop sharing and I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Cole, if that's all right. All right, so I'll stop sharing and you can share, Dr. Cole. All right, uh, so can you see this? Is it up? Yep, you can see it. So I'm just gonna run through a few slides. I certainly don't wanna turn this into a PowerPoint, but you know, one, one of the things I uh, that was interesting about this study, I think it's started to spawn many fracture mapping studies. Um, you see this, with the, the, the earlier techniques were fairly rudimentary. And, uh, and, and what I called the primary fracture lines were the fracture lines that occurred in every case. And the secondary fracture lines um, really um, represented zones of comminution. 100% of the fractures um, started in the fibula incisura in about 87% in that middle one-third corridor, uh, like you see. Here are the zones of comminution, so tremendous articular destruction right at the apex and anterior lateral, okay? So again, what was fascinating is that back in the uh, beginning part of this, uh, you know, in, in the early 2000s, all, all pylons were essentially fixed on the medial side, I think just because it was easier. And these are, you know, these are the, the problems, uh, you know, that, that we deal with. We want to work minimally invasively. You have, you have the fracture comminution much, much more distal than the plates that were, you know, even the first generation tibia pylon plates. You'd have to augment with little mini fragment plates and, and, and other plates. And uh, so, um, you see, this was just counterintuitive to me. Um, this was much more intuitive to me based on those fracture patterns. And um, I actually do have a conflict of interest. And this is a plate which I designed with uh, Synthes. But you see, these are the um, options that Dr. Mita was uh, referring to, the cluster of smaller um, 2, 4, and 2, 7 implants over the articular plafond, um, these kickstand screws which address each of the primary uh, fragments in the pylon map, and then the tabs, which go all the way down to the joint. Um, you, you know, you, you used to have to augment with mini fragment plates to address these very common patterns. Now, interestingly, um, this is the first map that I published uh, on the scapula fracture, and it's the same thing. You see patterns uh, emerge, which are very constant. And uh, 
and and we're taking this two-dimensional mapping to uh, three-dimensional mapping now, which is a tech now that we have the software to be able to take uh, 3D fractured surfaces and then reassemble them, um, we get more accurate maps. Um, this has been done for the posterior wall of the acetabulum. It's been done for the olecranon. It's been uh, done for many fractures since then. So again, I think it's a really helpful way of uh, visualizing fractures, even to an extent that you know, you can begin to think about classifications. Um, that's how these newer tibia plateau classifications began to emerge. Um, I'm starting to apply these concepts um, with some new technology, which unfurls bones. Uh, so I do a lot of chest wall surgery now, and you can see that we can map rib fractures. Um, uh, you, can, you can start to map certain rib fractures like the ones that occur uh, underneath the scapula. This is the subscapular flail chest uh, injury. And you can work these in three dimensions as well. The hot zones, of course, are the red zones, the yellow zones less frequent, and the green zones never fracture. So it is um, a very powerful um, technique of, uh, and, and way to understand uh, fractures. Um, so those were just the images I wanted to, to uh, uh, show. And uh, I'd be happy to take any questions. Great. Uh, thanks, Dr. Cole. Um, I'm going to go to the Q&A session, our Q&A comments from the audience. And maybe we can get started with those. Uh, first question. Um, Maybe uh, Dr. Meta can answer this uh, about question about indications for um, the fibula in pilon fractures about plating and screwing um, or plate versus screw. And if you have any thoughts about that. So <clears throat> I tend to want my fibula to be stable, uh, length stable. Um, and I like rigid fixation for my fibula. And maybe uh, I, I'm interested to hear comments about flexible fiction, but. Um, it, it, for me, uh, usually it's a plate, if particularly if there's comminution. Uh, you know, one advantage of just simple screw fixation is that uh, it's soft tissue friendly. If you can maintain length with uh, a screw fixation and get the fibula anatomic, um, so maybe it's a transverse pattern, uh, or maybe the soft tissue is not amenable to plate fixation, uh, then I think a screw is reasonable. Uh, again, uh, the fibular helps with your articular production of your tibia. And so if the fibula is off and I've got plenty of my own x-rays <laughs> and some others to share where the fibular malreduction uh, results in a summative malreduction of the tibia. Dr. Cole, any thoughts? Well, you know, Samir and I uh, share some of the same DNA. So uh, I think I would... Uh, repeat a lot of the things that he that that he uh, uh, said. Um, I tend to fix the uh, fibula early on the night of admission. The posterolateral incision is well tolerated. I prefer posterolateral incisions for the the uh, Weber B type injuries because there are several advantages. Um, it's a stronger fixation. You get a buttress. You can lag through the plate. You use uh, bicortical surfaces on the posterior and anterior fibula. And uh, when it's comminuted, um, 
I, I think it's easier to work on on an accurate length uh, uh, and and uh, bridge the gap um, on the night of injury than it is um, you know a couple weeks later. Um, I always use a uh, universal distractor in uh, pilon fracture surgery. I'm not sure I've ever fixed a pilon fracture without a universal distractor. It's very important. Um, uh, same with the headlight. Um, those are a couple things that come to mind. I, I do not uh, rely on um, single screw or just lag screw fixation, even of spiral fibula fractures. I like to get them moving aggressively and early and uh, work them in physical therapy as soon as that splint comes off and seven to nine days. And so I think uh, stable fixation is important to allow that. Great. And then a um, couple more questions. Uh, first one is about bone grafting and uh, peel-on fractures. Um, any thoughts on that? I think bone grafting uh, is an important part of uh, peel-on fracture management, no different than if you're doing a tibial plateau, um, having some structural support there. Now you can do that with uh, metal if need be, but I do think that um, managing those voids is so important to prevent uh, collapse. Uh, especially in the setting of an open pilon fracture where there is bone loss, uh, where you might use a, a mascalay style technique or a delayed bone grafting um, in the setting of uh, managing open soft tissue wounds or managing an open fracture. So for me, uh, I tend to use bone graft. I tend to use uh, crushed cancellus uh, as a, a structural allograft. Yeah, and I do as well. I used uh, uh, the, the the same. It's a little bit uh, less expensive and, and uh, than the um, um, composite materials, um, uh, um, calcium phosphate, uh, de, de jure, um, and it uh, you can work with it um, well, and uh, um, the risk of transmission of disease is nil. Um, I, I think it's very important to augment impacted uh, fracture surfaces with uh, allograft. Um, I don't use any allograft uh, in the open fracture setting. Um, that I plan to come back on a stage basis if necessary to fill, uh, fill gaps. All right, great. Um, and then I think we'll try to combine these last two questions into one, maybe just uh, um, and for the sake of time, maybe give a brief response for this, Dr. Cole, about um, the first one is about Bayesian modeling. Uh, would it be useful, uh, useful artificial intelligence tool to predict outcomes based on pilon mapping? Um, and then the other one kind of um, is uh, what software do you use for mapping? Um, so the, uh, the answer to the first question is yes, and, and the uh, software used for map mapping, the original one was uh, um, Fireworks uh, um, uh, software program. More recently, um, we've been using the uh, Siemens un unfurling uh, technology to, to map uh, uh, um, map the fractures onto a template of the opposite side um, in in actual uh, uh, patients where images of both the left and the right side are obtained. Great. Um, 
maybe we'll save uh, Dr. Varkey's question for the very end and see if we have some time to get to that with uh, the rest of our panel. But I think we'll, we'll move on. Thank you, Dr. Cole and Dr. Meta for participating. Thanks for yeah. having us. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, thank day, you. That was great. Are you going to stop sharing, Dr. Cole? Uh, Arun, how do I stop sharing? Uh, Don't you just take it away? Uh, no. Stop sharing. Um, I think it's up. At the, it'll be up at the top of your screen. You'll have to stop sharing. All right, perfect. Now I have control, so I'm going to get that closed off. Are you guys seeing presenter mode or are you guys seeing the actual PowerPoint? PowerPoint. Awesome, awesome. So let's proceed. So next we'll go to uh, Dr. Serkin's article. Uh, uh, this one's on the stage protocol for soft tissue management in the treatment of co uh, complex pilon fractures. Uh, and we're going to jump right into his video. Today, I have the pleasure of uh, interviewing Dr. Serkin um, regarding his landmark article titled A Staged Protocol for Soft Tissue Management in the Treatment of Complex Pilon Fractures. Thank you, Dr. Serkin, for being here tonight. My pleasure. So can we start off uh, by talking about what prompted your study here? Yeah, I was a fellow down in uh, Tampa at the time. and. Uh, it was just at the time where people were starting to um, try to re try to do open reduction uh, of pilon fractures. <clears throat> in the past, uh, open reduction had gotten a pretty bad name in the uh, 80s and into even the early 90s with high complication rates. And in Tampa, we were doing a stage protocol. Uh, we weren't the first people to do it, but we followed a pretty standard protocol. Helfit had done it a little bit earlier where they would uh, do some stage stuff. And there were other stage protocols coming out to protect the soft tissue. Everybody at this time was realizing that it wasn't the bone and that it was the soft tissue. And so uh, myself as the fellow and Roy as the uh, senior author, uh, thought that we should write up our uh, experience with pilon fractures and how we would do a staged protocol to show people that if you did a staged protocol, waited for the soft tissues to be ready for surgery, then you could have safe, good uh, results. Great. And do you mind describing what your staged protocol was? Sure. What we did is, is uh, patients within 24 hours of their injury would get go to the operating room they would get a spanning external fixation with two tibial pins and a transcalcaneal uh, pin and a delta frame, and we would plate the fibula as well. And so that was stage one. Patients would then uh, be told to rest their leg. We'd get a CT scan typically after the external fixator went on, and then we would bring them back, discharge home, and when the soft tissue was ready for the second stage of the surgery, we would do definitive reconstruction and we would remove the external fixator. You also have to remember that at the time in 1999 and before, we had one operative approach, which was a standard anterior medial, uh, just medial to the tibialis anterior. And we did almost every case through those. It wasn't until later on uh, where we started developing um, fragment-specific approaches and smaller approaches and multiple approaches. Um, and so uh, we would bring them back typically in two to three weeks, take off their fixator, do an ORIF, and then uh, 
that would be their final stage. Great. Could you briefly discuss your results that you found in your paper? Well, we were primarily looking at wound problems, and uh, we had around um, 57 or so uh, cases, and it was both open and closed fractures. It was probably uh, two-thirds, one-third more closed fractures than open fractures. And what we found is we had no no amputations, no cases of, uh, of uh, deep infection that we couldn't get rid of, and we only had some superficial wound problems uh, early in both uh, in the in both groups. It was uh, we found it to be safe to the soft tissues. Did you or your authors notice any difference between the treatment of open or closed pilon fractures um, with the Sage protocol? So when we looked at open and closed, they had the same protocol, and uh, what I and so they both had fairly low incidence of soft tissue problems related to our surgical incisions. What I have altered over the last 20 years of being in practice is, is and I, when I went into practice, is, is I would do exactly what I was taught at the time. I'd fix the fibula, I'd put an X-fix on, and it wouldn't be uncommon for an anterior medial wound to be able, uh, an anterior medial uh, traumatic wound. And it seemed like I, it was taking me much longer to get into these. So what I've done for open fractures now is try to fix what I can through the open fracture, which at least if I can get part of the joint back or part of the diaphyseal or metaphyseal back, I can then pick a different surgical approach. If we have an anterior medial wound, I might go anterior lateral now, where maybe the fracture wants me to go anterior medial, but I've done some work on the medial side through the open wound, and now I can maybe pick a different approach and stay away from that traumatized and badly, and badly injured skin and get to them in a more timely manner. I just noticed it was taking way too long to be able to reoperate on some of those because I wanted to go through right where that traumatic wound was. Great. And on that note, um, a couple of other questions. So uh, you briefly discussed this uh, about the role of external fixation, especially with the anterior medial approach. Now with fragment specific and the anterior lateral approaches, um, is that ha has that changed your own protocol as far as fixing um, pylons? No, I still do a stage protocol. Uh, the benefit, uh, I plate the fibula generally, unless the lateral side is too swollen, but that's probably 80% of the time we can probably fix the fibula and span it with an external fixator. The big difference now is with, with fragment-specific fixation and fragment-specific approaches. Um, specifically, you know, we use the workhorses are intermedial, anterolateral, and occasionally posterolateral and posteromedial. Some people are doing a straight anterior, but what the, the multiple approaches allow us to do is we really have to study the CAT scans a lot more than we used to. We used to basically just look at them to see where the fragments were, open up anterior medial and try to put everything back together. Now I think we have a better understanding of the fracture. We study the CAT scans a little bit more to figure out what exactly is the right approach uh, based on that particular fracture. So. Overall, the only thing that's changed is the decision for uh, where to make your incisions for the second stage. Great. And then one other question regarding plating the fibula, which the majority of your patients you guys did during your first stage. Now, for trauma surgeons where there's other general generalists taking call, what is the, uh, what are your thoughts on fixing the fibula during that primary placement of an external fixator if, if they're not going to be the definitive uh, surgeon? Well, you know, I think that um, 
I would I would warn staying away from the fibula for sure. Uh, it has to be anatomic. A lot of these pilons are not simple fracture patterns. They're more complicated. They have comminution. They're not a simple rotational type injury. They're usually some type of a direct or or axial load, direct mechanism or an axial load. Um, if you can immediately transfer a patient to someone who's going to take care of it on day one, I think that the best thing you should do is wrap them up, splint them, and send them out, and send them uh, to them, send it to the treating surgeon who could plate the fibula, and then do the external fixer. If for whatever reason you're in a location where, you know, maybe it's a Friday and, you know, no one's going to be able to accept the patient till a Monday, or you're in a rural area and you're going to ship it to a different place where it's going to take a couple of days to get there. I think putting a, knowing how to put a safe external fixator and regaining length is probably in your best interest, and I would recommend doing that. Keys here are making sure it's out to length. Your pins stay out of the zone of injury so that you're not burning any bridges for later fixation. Uh, but I would leave the fibula alone to the treating surgeon. And I think most of the orthopedic traumatologists these days would recommend leaving the fibula alone. Great points. Um, if you were to redo the study um, in the current time, uh, what would you change and what would you, how, how would you do it differently? I probably would not do much differently. What I would uh, like to see is our study was not really based on outcomes of the pylons. It was just trying to look at whether it was safe to do it from a soft tissue standpoint. I think it would be nice to be able to uh, further, I would like look at the different approaches we did. I would try to delineate which exactly, um, which fractures are more amenable through an anterior, uh, medial, anterior lateral, which ones need a posterior lateral. There have been studies uh, that have been done that show that it's very safe to be able to do multiple incisions, especially if you do biologic approaches, uh, looking at the seven centimeter rule. But I would then focus on outcomes. Were we able to better reduce the fracture and what are the long-term outcomes to try to look and see if we're approaching some of Rudy's stuff, uh, Rudy and Algauer stuff from ski injuries with the, these higher energy pylons. I'd really like to quantitate as well the quality of the reduction uh, with post-operative CT scans if, I, if we could do something like that to try to show that, you know, reduction does matter. Um, trying to get a perfect reduction is worthwhile if you can do it. There's some people who have said the injury determines it, which is not untrue, but how true is it really? Thank you for your time. Thanks. All right, we're gonna go ahead and go to Today, the I've next video. Uh, Next article, which is on the results of uh, taking a different spin, but uh, results of early primary open reduction internal fixation for treatment of OTA43 C type pilon fractures, a cohort study. Uh, and joining us is Dr. going to be Dr. Yi. Uh, and the other author was Dr. Tim White, who was interviewed. I'm pleased to be talking with uh, Dr. Tim White from the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh in Scotland. Um, welcome, Tim, and thank you for joining me. Uh, we'll be discussing your paper from the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma back in 2010, uh, entitled The Results of Early Primary OAF of Treatment of OTA43C uh, Tibial Pylon Fractures. Um, this is a very interesting study to me in that it went against staged management um, of these injuries and challenged sort of that orthopedic dogma, and I guess it sort of reincarnated early 
single stage management of these injuries. Um, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of that? Yeah, so I was uh, in Vancouver at the time as a fellow. Um, I had been trained in Edinburgh, where a very similar philosophy existed in that the standard way of treating fractures of this nature was to perform primary open reduction and internal fixation. And I guess the background of this study um, was um, directly related to that history. So, uh, of course, as I'm sure you'll uh, have been discussing in your journal club, there's been a pendulum uh, of preference for treating these injuries. And so the AO group popularized early fixation, and then gradually the pendulum swung over the course of the 80s and early 90s um, away from primary fixation because of some uh, terrible results recorded in a, a number of papers, um, resulting in, in Sirkin's uh, key paper on the uh, on the stage protocol and that had really hit quite firmly at the time that i went out to vancouver and i worked for a fantastic uh, charismatic surgeon called bob meek um, who had really been the father of a lot of uh, orthopedic trauma surgery in canada and had gathered this fantastic group of very talented uh, orthopedic surgeons around him and he was just absolutely incandescent um, in the coffee room one day because a whole lot of his residents had been off on a course um, and they'd been talked about uh, penile fractures and they'd come back and they said, Dr. Meek, uh, you're planning on doing this primary fixation this morning and quite frankly, that's not acceptable. It's, it's almost negligent. We've been learning all about it on this course and the only way to treat this is using the stage protocol. And uh, after he'd been resuscitated a little bit, we, we talked about the situation and we came up with this plan um, to review the cases that they had been doing over the course of um, the previous few years, just to demonstrate um, that the course of treatment that they preferred and which I had also been used to in Edinburgh wasn't necessarily better. It wasn't uni necessarily universally applicable. But the key thing was, was really to find out, is it an acceptable alternative? And is it, is it truly the case now that anything other than a circuit stage protocol is, is unacceptable? So that was, that was the background. So we, the, the genesis came over a discussion and I was sent off into the dusty archives to, to look out the results of their, of their work. That's very interesting. So when you guys had some reasonable results from this and this sort of information got disseminated how was it received or what was some of the criticisms of the paper so it was uh, it was very controversial it was it was quite fun to go along to the ota the year after i'd been a fellow in vancouver and, and present it because there was a great deal of concern um and i, I think there were, there were, as usual, when you have a, have a paper that challenges orthodoxy, there was a, there was a variety of responses between flat-out disbelief um, and, and cynicism um, and, and caution. And, and I think perfectly reasonably, because, you know, as we know, these injuries do have dreadful, potentially dreadful results. And the Circin Protocol had provided an opportunity for a range of orthopedic surgeons with a, with a range of different skills in treating these type of injuries to, do, to follow one safe um, protocol. 
So um, I think the concerns raised were principally that on, on one of the end of the spectrum, you guys are barking mad, you shouldn't be doing this, that's clearly going to lead to disaster. In, in the middle, there was a, a sort of interest, a scientific interest in rights. So what type of patients are you doing it on? When, when can this type of acute primary surgery work? And where do we start moving along that spectrum of injury severity into an area where really that's no longer applicable and the stage protocol becomes a much safer way to, to proceed? That sort of opens it up a little bit. So then how, how does this shape your practice now or how did it then and how does it now? Because those are the sort of questions that are, are very interesting because it is a big gray area. Yeah. Absolutely. So I came back from Vancouver. I got my, my staff job in Edinburgh and we were continuing to hear this, this skepticism, uncertainty um, regarding this Vancouver paper. And there were sort of quotes that this can only possibly work within a, you know, a square mile of the uh, Vancouver General Hospital. It doesn't work anywhere else. So I, I knew that we'd been doing the same thing in Edinburgh for, for years and years. And so I then did effectively the same paper. I went back with one of my um, senior residents at the time, now a fantastic uh, research colleague. And we look at, looked at our results doing the same thing in, in Edinburgh and published it in, in the Bone and Joint Journal and found almost exactly the same with 102 patients. Really just confirming I think not necessarily that this is one protocol for everybody, not one protocol for every patient or every surgeon, but in the right situation with the right skills, the right access to operating theatres, it can be a perfectly safe, effective, successful way of managing these injuries. So really, we've then continued um, with this exact same protocol in Edinburgh ever since. So... That brings up a couple issues. Um, in terms of timing, in the initial paper, you guys talked about an early treatment window and somewhere between 48, 24 and 48 hours. Um, in the follow-up paper, maybe a little bit longer. What sort of, what's that treatment window for you and, and sort of how do you define that or how do you, what, what sort of, what's the decision making there? Yeah. So. I think there is a, definitely an early period of safety. I would be, I would be, I'm unable to pin down a number of hours for you because I think that in addition to timing, there's also quite a, a spect, you know, there's clearly a very important spectrum of severity. And with lower severity, you can get away with um, increased timing. Um, so I, ideally, these patients are in the theater within 24 hours less severe injuries, perfectly possible to operate within 48 hours. Some of them, you know, um, behave, particularly if they're low energy injuries, not dissimilarly to, you know, a bad ankle fracture, in which case they're really, the timing isn't a really significant issue and the skin is, is suitable for surgery um, throughout the course of the next three or four days. Um, but that, you know, I think if you're looking to, to say, right, we'll maybe try this, this policy how are we going to set up a new protocol for our department? I would say to start off with, until you've got a feel for this, you need to be getting this patient into the operating theatre during the, the course of the next day after injury. Um, 
ideally that's within daylight hours so you've got the right nurses and radiographers and so on to do this expeditiously and clearly you've got to be in a setting where you're you're familiar with the uh, the surgery itself are these patients that you would take after hours because i know in the original paper they said that the majority i think were operated on within eight hours so is this something that you in your practice now take sort of overnight no no um and even in the vancouver paper i think it was only 25 percent of patients who were taken out of hours yeah um, and that was in a in a center and at a time um, where out of hours surgery was pursued more aggressively and i think really since the late 90s early 2000s um and and particularly maybe since the time of this paper around 2010 the number of cases done out of hours generally in orthopedics has, has dropped off very substantially hasn't it we're much more comfortable with with deferring uh, for both closed and, and particularly open fractures so when answer to your question no very very rarely it would need to be um, an injury that had some major degree of contamination or a significant progressive neurovascular problem to be doing out of hours mm -hmm. um, how do patient factors uh, play into your decision making either concomitant injuries comorbidities or even social factors to, or is it more of a soft tissue assessment? Yeah, no, I think it's very much a combination of all of those. It's a synthesis of all those um, elements, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of the, of, the, of the patients, both the Vancouver paper and the subsequent Edinburgh paper really demonstrated quite clearly that the patients who do badly are those with significant medical comorbidities. Um, and so um, neuropathy, diabetes, alcoholism, are all um, significantly associated with these problems and I guess we're far more skeptical about those um, now and in my practice currently um, I'm gradually moving I think to more primary fusion um, of injuries of this type so clearly we throw in severity of injury to that as well um, and severity of bony and articular injury but where there's a patient with compromised vascularity, comp uh, and di diabetes, uh, particularly um, uh, altered uh, peripheral sensation, I'm much more likely to, to consider fusion now than a painstaking reconstruction. Um, now, if, what would you, if you were to give the listeners sort of uh, main take home points from this paper, what would you, what would you highlight? Um, I would highlight that the primary open reduction and internal fixation of pion fractures is perfectly reasonable, rational, and safe in the right patients um, in the right environment. And that extends into quite a substantial proportion. So in the Vancouver paper, very few uh, were managed in a staged protocol, that was 2.5%. In Edinburgh, we had slightly more, it was 20% or more. So even if it's not working for every single patient, it would work for the majority of patients. That's great. I think that's a, a great place. And uh, thank you, Dr. White, for your time. It's uh, much appreciated. Thank you very much for time. It's been really, really interesting. Good to speak to you. I'm pleased to be Great. Uh, so we're going to turn over to John for a question and answer with Dr. Shirkin and Dr. Gee.
All right, great. Thanks, Arun. Um, so Dr. White wasn't able to join us. It's uh, the middle of the night in uh, Scotland. So we've got uh, Dr. Such a slacker. He's such a slacker that Tim White. <laughs> oh, just kidding. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Dr. Gee. Um, so um, my first question is for you. Now, anytime we were reading a paper, we were thinking about the generalizability of uh, the results or the intervention. Um, in this paper, you had 88% of the, the patients with, were able to get to the OR within, within 48 hours of the injury, and 98% were able to get to the OR within 48 hours of admission. Um, so my question is, what is the setup like in Vancouver to allow you to facilitate this early definitive care? Uh, as essentially, it's, uh, it, was, it was hard work that was done, and, and Tim White mentioned it by Bob Meek. Who started this idea of daytime protected time for orthopedic trauma patients uh, because our patients were always competing with something that was always more important so uh, because the volume was there having a protected time available uh, every day so now we have uh, you know eight days eight or days and you know seven days a week essentially uh, and i think having uh, easy access to um, you know predictably to our time is one of the important factors so and I think that's what's brought into this paper is, is there's a number of things that make this possible. One is to have people who are dedicated to the care of the surgical care of trauma patients uh, available and able to treat the patients and also that there's, um, that there's a wire time available, so. Awesome. Um, Dr. Sirkin, uh, I've got a question for you. Um, you mentioned fragment specific approaches and um, fragment specific fixation is an evolution of your treatment of these injuries. Um, has uh, this included sort of early definitive fixation in, in your case? Um, why or why not? You're muted. Hi. Uh, that's a good question. As we heard Peter Cole allude to and talk about his fracture map. You heard about how there was comminution in certain locations and other people have published this as well before the mapping. And we started figuring out that it's very hard to address anterior lateral comminution through an anterior medial approach. You have to really do a lot of stripping to get over there and, and address these fragments. Similarly with the posterior lateral fragment. I mean, when I used to see a posterior lateral fragment 20 years ago when we fixed the pilon, I knew it was going to be a long day trying to get that piece perfect from, from anterior medial. And so uh, that, that's why people started studying it and started approaching it. People like Sean and, uh, P and Pierre and Peter would, you know, started approaching these things from a different point. And so for me, um, I still do most of mine stage. There are some things where I'll typically, where I will do early. So if I have an open Pilon fracture, I'll address whatever I can through the open wound, getting back articular fragments uh, through that as well um, to try, because I found it very hard to go back through those uh, areas. And so small plates or small screws where you can either get articular fractures back or some uh, um, cortical pieces of bone that'll help you put the joint back in space later, I think are optimally addressed through open fractures that are uh, on night one. The other, uh, the other frat parts I will do on day one will be taking a large posterior medial um, cortical fragment that may or may not have the posterior malleolus on it or some other part as uh, Sean Nark uh, and the 
and the guys up in Seattle have shown to create basically taking sometimes a C fracture and converting it to a B by fixing some posterior medial long spike, or even just getting the cortex correct uh, in that area so that you'll have something to build back, uh, um, uh, build back to later. But for the most part, I'm still doing mostly stage reconstructions, except in those uh, types of scenarios. Okay. Now, in following that, um, you I'm just wondering, what's your, what sort of things do you um, take into account when you're judging the soft tissues? And how long does it, is it usually taking you to get to these? Is there an optimal time? Um, what's that sort of subjective uh, assessment for you? So because these are done as staged reconstructions, um, so typically our patients will get to the operating room in the first 24 hours. So they'll come in in the middle of the night or they'll come in you know, later in the afternoon. We'll take them to the OR the next morning, typically as a first case. We'll get the pilon uh, uh, assessed. We'll get an external fixator on it. Typically it's a some type of delta frame with a calcaneal pin and two tibial pins. And we'll plate the fibula um, and get that spanned and out to length and then CAT scan it. And then those patients typically get home, go home. And then the earliest we're really considering doing anything on them is typically 10 days. And by 10 days, I would say half or maybe more are ready. And then uh, some take a little bit longer and some of it's a judgment call. Um, and it's just experience with, with, with doing it. But Less than less than a week for us is not good. There's been some papers that have shown that, you know, you have a higher incidence of infection. We look for blisters to heal. So if you have bloody blisters, you want them to skin to re-epithelialize. I typically leave blisters alone. I don't really like to do very much with them. And uh, sometimes these patients will come in at 14 days for their second surgery. And you'll go, wow, they still have blisters. And then when you peel the blisters down, you'll find all this normal epithelialized skin underneath. So that I would say, take down them at two weeks and take a look at them. And what we typically do is we'll do it on our elective surgical day. So some of the timing is not really exactly when the patient is definitively ready. It's when they're ready and we have surgical time. And then if they're not ready at, at that time, uh, like my OR day is typically on Wednesdays. If they're not ready on that Wednesday, I may bring them back the following Wednesday and just make it so that it's on time. I do like to get to it as early as I can and still be safe because I think with less fracture healing, with less consolidation, um, it is easier. I mean, I'm sure it's, it's much easier in uh, Pierre's uh, hands on day one or two to put a fracture back together than it is to do it at day 10 or day seven. And, you know, there are times where I've had to wait, you know, three, four weeks and, you know, that's a long day. Yeah. <coughs> um, now, Dr. Gee, I want to talk a little bit about the wounds um, in this in early definitive <coughs> treatment. Um, in the paper, it, it said that you were managing these wounds largely if they were open um, in a delayed fashion. So is that still your experience now? That's the first part. And the second part is that what do you do if a wound won't close? Yeah, so uh, similar to, uh, I mean, what we've published for um, tibia fractures a long time ago, uh, we'll probably, you know, in those, in, the, in this era, we probably would use a bead pouch or some kind of, uh, 
a way to keep the area sterile and sealed. And we're along with, you know, access to our time, we're fortunate with having a very collaborative a group of plastic reconstructive surgeons who, uh, who are involved in, in, uh, in decision-making with, with the care of these patients. So uh, it's not that common that we require flaps for these, but it, it would happen. But the way we would manage this typically would be, uh, you know, irrigation debris mount, uh, having a fixation and applying a, what we would have a bead pouch at that time would have been antibiotic beads, uh, you know, off-site and a hemovac drain. Uh, probably now is, you know, uh, placed by various uh, vacuum-assisted type of dressings, but uh, that would be that would be the approach. Okay. But, but sealing sealing the wound, I mean, uh, you know, just I'm just mindful of uh, just putting vacuum-assisted uh, dressings out there in the presence of cartilage. I think you have to be careful of that. So, um, but the um, but some kind of uh, stage management where the patient will be brought back to the operating room later for definitive uh, wound care. Okay. Um, now there's a question about uh, aspirating um, fracture blisters and leaving the epithelium intact as a biologic dressing. Um, do you guys find, do you do this or do you find this helpful at all? Are you unroofing blisters or are you leaving them intact? I know we talked about this a little bit already. I think there's probably a whole lot of uh, protocols uh, that you'll see out there for management of that. Uh, certainly, uh, surgeons don't want to see any uh, problems with, with infection. Uh, for me, if uh, the blisters are uh, torn or if some a case has blisters and, and we you know, rupture them, I tend to treat those with the same way we do with um, a burn. And I'll use, uh, you know, um, there's you know, products that we use for, the, for, uh, for burns to, uh, to cover that area. As part of the dressing, afterwards, I don't, I don't uh, intentionally like Mike uh, look out to pop any blister, but if some are uh, uh, broken, then I, I manage them. Yeah, Pierre, I don't intentionally break them either. I mean, um, uh, what I found is that two weeks when I'm thinking, um, I can't do it if I unroof those blisters. Those have typically healed underneath. Uh, I leave my blisters alone for the most part. Um, I will, if I see them in a week and a half and they're still bloody filled, I will do as somebody in the question and answer said, aspirate them. It's not really aspirate them because it's, it's clotted blood. Um, <clears throat> you kind of like make a little cut in the dependent portion, push all the blood out and leave that epithelium on top. But uh, the acute blister, I don't aspirate. I just leave it alone. I think uh, our bodies were made to deal with this. Uh, and uh, I do know a lot of people use Sylvadine. Uh, if you ask the plastics guys, they want you to unroof them and use Sylvadine. I just haven't found that to be very helpful. And I do agree with Pierre. There are a lot of people doing a lot of things. So find something that works for you. And uh, and if it doesn't work, try something different. I think there's a lot of good protocols out there. And I don't think there's one standard answer. Okay. Um, Dr. Cole, are you, uh, are you a de-roofer of blisters? Uh, I do. I, I, uh, I, um, agree with with virtually everything that Michael said from an approach standpoint. Um, so I I stage routinely. Um, I um, unroof my blisters and debridum. I guess in my mind, uh, the dead epithelium as a um, culture medium. Uh, it's only going to promote bacterial colonization. 
So I'd like to get uh, to the base, uh, place a xeriform over it and let it re-epithelialize before um, applying an approach near the area and certainly through it. That's my bias. I, uh, but I agree with what's been said about all the different kinds of protocols. I, um, there may be a little more religion than, than uh, fact involved or evidence at least. Um, there's one last question here that we got. I think it's it's interesting because we haven't talked about this. Uh, are, is there an indi indication for you for definitively managing these in an external fixator, standard frame or a ring fixator? What, what are those indications for you? So, um, you know, for me, the for me these days, uh, it's not very common. Uh, there are uh, I trained in a place where we did. Where, did we, where we did publish one of the original papers on using hybrid external fixation for penile fractures. Um, I, I just find it very hard to get a good reduction. Uh, and if I um, doing things closed or just with an external fixator, I think there are some indications uh, to do it. A severe comminution maybe in an open fracture in the metaphysis where you may not be able to get stable fixation, but where you can have an articular block may be a good indication. Um, other indications uh, could um, could potentially be just more related to soft tissue and where you need a spanning fixator and you're kind of going to let you're not really going for a definitive uh, articular reduction you may want to span this let things heal out and then maybe come back later to do a fusion as opposed to an early fusion I find it very hard to get a fusion early with all metaphyseal fracture lines and everything to get stable fixation and so by bridging everything and allowing things to settle down and heal uh, you may be able to salvage something on the severely comminuted pilon um, I just found it to be frankly too annoying to me and the patients <laughs> they don't tolerate it very well um, they were, it's a little bit different than people that need lengthenings or, uh, you know, or, or reconstructions with frames. They're prepared for this type of a treatment. And so in our hands and in my hands now, I find it fairly safe to do uh, plating or percutaneous treatment and then use a percutaneous plate. I agreed uh, with the, fully with Mike, uh, John, that, that uh, it'd be exceptionally rare to treat somebody, you know, definitively with an external fixator and there'll be some indications uh, and mainly probably soft tissue or polytrauma patient, I guess that you can never get to, uh, but, uh, but soft tissue. I just want to point out that uh, it, um, it's always uh, seen as kind of a, you know, one philosophy opposing another in this, and this really are not our mindset at all. Uh, you know, I think we, we, uh, we, we tend to think that we encourage uh, thoughtfulness and, and judgment. And if you think that uh, you're in that early phase and the, that you have the skill set and you have the access to the operating room uh, to take care of that patient early, you should do that. If you can't do that, that may be the stage protocol is better for you and, and for your system. Uh, in our case, uh, we can't get to everybody at the time. And sometimes people get transferred from far away and uh, we, have, we have to deal with the cards that we are dealt. And that, that's rare in our system, it doesn't happen that often, but, it, but if, if somebody is in a situation where you can't um, operate on them early or once you get to them, they're too swollen, then you shouldn't proceed on. So this is not a, a dogmatic approach. It's, it's one where we wanted to 
look at our own, you know, having been told by our trainees that it was an unsafe thing to do, we wanted to look at our own experience because we thought we weren't doing so badly and we wanted to see, well, are we really doing that badly? And, and this is what, uh, this is what came out, so. And the same thing, probably, uh, it's not a fight between, uh, you know, platers and ex-fixers. I think people who are, uh, you know, I've had a lot of experience in both. I just prefer plating, but there's plenty of people who have great results using X-Fix, and I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't dare to tell a Tracy Watson or a Larry Marsh, uh, don't treat your pylons with external fixators because they certainly are masters at it, and they do it very, very well. And I wouldn't tell Pierre he should uh, stage all his pylons. I just find, I think. Overall, in everything we do, I think you should do things that you find work in your hands, as Pierre said, in your system, and kind of stay within that realm if you want. Be mindful, think around things. Uh, guys like Peter Cole, you know, who are constantly putting things on the edge and trying to ask good questions and coming up with new approaches to things, I think those uh, are also helpful. And I think that that's how we've all, over the last 20 years, have been. Uh, coming up with what we're doing by finding things that work for us and then thinking about things continuously. But there's not, that's the kind of like the fun thing of orthopedics is, is, you know, there's not one way to do anything. Thank God. There's probably one thing that we all agree on is that operating on a pylon fracture at about three to five days is probably not the, not the right thing. They're probably quite, quite swollen. And it's actually one thing that we wanted to highlight in the paper when the when the internal fixation, primary internal fixation was sort of uh, shot down, if you want, or, or really uh, frowned upon. If you look at all of these papers, these are papers that where they treated patients operatively at around that time period, three to five days. And they used also fixation strategies. We talked about in the first, in the first uh, section about you know, uh, internal fixation options. Uh, were they used in, in those days fixation strategies that wouldn't be acceptable nowadays? So there's some that were, you know, K-wires and, and, uh, and, uh, and plaster and or single screws or, you know, tension band wires, uh, you know. So, the, you know, I think we've, we've evolved in that sense and in uh, stabilizing the limb, I think, is part of the soft tissue care. And that's something I think, uh, that, although we've never proven that, but, you know, releasing the hematoma, stabilizing the soft tissues can actually contribute to, to helping your, uh, your soft tissue healing. Instead of, of operating in this uh, thick, woody, you know, soft tissue envelope, operating uh, in the, a, um, a soft tissue envelope that's soft on the first day is, uh, is to me, much more pleasant anyway. Indeed. Well, uh, that was some great discussion. I, I might turn it back over to Arun uh, for a wrap up. Thank you very much. All right, uh, thank you so much for the authors that have uh, joined us, uh, Dr. Cole, Dr. Mehta, Dr. Sherkin, Dr. Dean. Just wanted to uh, quickly end with the last couple of slides, just kind of the take home messages in addition to the really uh, poignant facts about multiple different ways to skin a cat. Um, understand the three basic fracture fragments, uh, you know, from the Pion map, as well as the central combination, Dr. Cole should a great PowerPoint in this. So, you know, if you can, please read that article. Uh, understand the limitations of the anterolateral approach. You know, we talked about some good reduction strategies, but realize when not to use it, you know, particularly solely when there's uh, fractures with medial comminution, crush, compaction, segmental medial mal, and various deformity, you know, you're, you're dealing with limited 
in terms of what you can get exposure with uh, the intralateral approach. Keep in mind there are high rates of infection immune problems with complex femoral fractures can be improved with a stage, uh, stage protocol with an initial restoration of fibrillin length and next fix followed by delayed open reduction in tone fixation. However, at the same time, uh, according to Dr. White, Dr. White and Dr. Gee, what they're recommending is early open reduction in tone fixation of femoral fractures is a reasonable and safe approach in the right patient in the right clinical environment. So keep, keep all these uh, variables in mind and these take-home messages. Uh, the next uh, upcoming orth orthopedic journal clubs uh, for the AO are going to be on the humeral shaft uh, in January uh, and then the calcaneus in February. Keep in mind uh, a link of this recording will be sent out through Zoom 24 hours after this conclusion. And uh, please subscribe to this AO Trauma North America channel where uh, this journal club will be posted. And with that, uh, I think uh, Mackenzie's going to share email, and I think that should be it. So thank you again for all the uh, authors and moderators.